are entering the Freedom Hut. Pelosi says there will not be an impeachment of the president, but guess what? I don't believe her. We will break down where this is all heading with the end of the Mueller probe in sight and now all these other investigations up and running. Plus, the left has gone after Tucker Carlson, their usual smear tactics and underhanded nonsense at work. We'll break that down for you and the crisis at the border gets worse. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's like I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Moderate is not a stance, it's just an attitude toward life of like, mm. <laughs> We've become so cynical that, that we view meh or uh, or we view cynicism as an intellectually superior attitude. And we view ambition as youthful naivete. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. There you had it from the de facto messaging leader, to be sure, of the Democratic Party, AOC, that moderation is not a stance. Moderate is not a stance. Now, we have words to describe people like what AOC is describing. Somebody who does not view there to be such a thing as moderate and and to think that extreme ambition when it comes to remaking society from young people is something to be wary of. We call them radicals. And we are dealing with a radical and radicalizing even more Democrat party. And we need to be very clear about that. Uh, We see this in the pronouncements from Capitol Hill. We see this on the various left-leaning news outlets and channels out there. We these are these people are not looking to win us over. They don't even care what you think. They just want the power to make you do what they want to make you do. If they have that authority, if they have that ability, everything else just falls into place. Your opinion does not matter to them. They are not reaching out to you. They do not care what your view of never mind the direction of the country should be, your own life. How much freedom? How much liberty? What protections of rights should you have? Your opinion is irrelevant to them because they are radicals, because you are in the way of the revolution, my friends. Bernie Sanders in the last election would talk about a political revolution, and that is certainly what we are facing now. Although history will tell you that political revolutions can turn into more than just that very quickly, and I certainly don't ever hope that that would happen here. But we are on the cusp of a political revolution toward socialism and the hard left. That's how you can have somebody who is beloved, beloved in the media saying things like this, play clip two. Capitalism isn't to me is it's an ideology of capital. It puts capital, the most important thing is the concentration of capital and it means that we seek and prioritize profit and the accumulation of money above 
all else and we seek it at any human and environmental cost. That is what that means. And to me, that ideology is not sustainable and cannot be redeemed. Let's just take a moment there, take a beat. Here you have the most celebrated and beloved left-wing Democrat in the country right now who is not yet 30 years old and is a, a, a shockingly ignorant person. But stating outright that the ideology of, ideology of capitalism is not sustainable and cannot be redeemed. Essentially, we cannot continue with capitalism and we cannot try or should not try to fix capitalism either. Cannot be redeemed. Now, this would be news to a world that has seen a reduction in poverty because of capitalism that would 100 years ago have seemed completely impossible. And since 1990, the number of human beings living in extreme poverty, which is less than $2 a day, has globally declined, my friends, by two-thirds. By two-thirds. Uh, you are talking about hundreds of millions of people who are no longer living in extreme poverty. And all along the, the various strata of, econ uh, of socioeconomic positions across the world, you have people that are also now closer and closer to a middle, what we would consider a middle class life, closer and closer to uh, specialization and higher levels of education. And the world is getting wealthier and richer all the time. And it is because of the underlying ideology of capitalism that is the engine for this growth where, where is all the growth happening where where is the where is the uh the the economic boom really occurring people say oh buck yeah it's america sure it's uh, it's in it's in europe a lot of practice in you know, eu is the biggest economy in the world but you know, look at china and that i say yeah guess what china looked at capitalism and said okay there's some good ideas here we should probably do that we're not going to do democracy and political representation but we, we are going to try to have the effective deployment of capital, uh, capital via market mechanisms instead of pure central planning. And we are going to have the profit motive for people who are running businesses. This is why you have a lot of billionaires in China now. So uh, capitalism works, my friends. In China, you've had uh, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people over the last hundred years brought out of, in China alone brought out of poverty. But she wants to throw this all away. In, in part, I think, out of a deep ignorance. She just does not understand really what this is. Uh, she does not know. And all of her life, she's been around people in the social justice movement and on the, on the far left fringe, which now runs the Democratic Party, so I suppose it's not really a fringe anymore, who have been clapping for her and telling her all these platitudes, all this mind-numbing banality about workers and capitalism and this very superficial teen vogue magazine understanding of marxism they've been clapping for her telling her that this is brilliant and that she's brilliant and everything that she does is great everything we've done is great i mean that, that's how she can say things like this for example play clip four we have created artificial scarcity, and that is why we are driven to work 80 hours a week when we are being our most productive at any point in American history. And so we, you know, we should be working the least amount we've ever worked. 
if we were actually paid based on how much wealth we were producing. Mm -hmm. But we're not. We're paid on how little we're desperate enough to accept. And then the rest is skimmed off and given to a billionaire. I mean, this is just anybody with even a basic understanding of economics should pull their hair out there and say, oh, oh my gosh, you're going to have this person in charge? The wealth we're producing is skimmed off and given to a billionaire? I mean, this is just the billionaire as boogeyman trope that Bernie Sanders uses and Ocasio-Cortez uses, and they don't care that its its connection to reality is tenuous at best. Right? Uh, you know, there's no question about it. Tenuous at best. And in most cases, just completely absurd. But we should be working, or we should be getting the full amount of wealth we create. If the market does not create that wealth, then what does? As in, if wages are not a function of market forces, then who determines what wages are? The government, central planning, a central committee even. You start to see where all this is going. No, it's not that you'll be paid what an employer wants to pay you based upon their need for your labor and the productivity they think they will get from that labor. No, the government should make those determinations for that employer. Hmm. You have to start asking questions like, why is an AOC then for a $50 minimum wage? Why not a $50 minimum wage? It's just about the productivity that you create, right? She doesn't understand that there are profit margins involved here. There are costs of production. There's rent for the office, for the facility, for the, manu- uh, for the manufacturing plant, for whatever we're talking about here. There are input costs as well. She just thinks that the money comes from like the magic money fairy and gets distributed to people based upon where the government says the money fairy should take it. Has a, a just uh, not even a novice's understanding of this. And she is... The, the fact that she can go on TV and say these things and people aren't openly mocking her on on both sides of the aisle just goes to tell you that there's nothing, nothing here that the left is willing to, uh, to, there's nothing the left will draw a line on. They'll just let her keep running off and saying this stuff as long as their party, you know, looks young and has, you know, and, and has this appealing spokesperson for leftist Uh, leftist ideology and leftist policies, they don't care. They're going to be fine with that. They're going to be fine with the open embrace of not just things that have a Marxist twang to them, but, but are openly Marxist. That's where we've gone now. It has not taken very long. And Bernie Sanders is right when he says that the Democrat socialist in 2016 didn't win the primary, but he won the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is now completely embracing ideas that even 10 years ago we would have thought were just wacko. Here's Bernie saying it, and Bernie's right. Play six. Ideas that seemed so very radical at that time. Well, today, virtually all of those ideas are supported by a majority of the American people and they are being supported by Democratic candidates from school board to president of the United States. Now, he's playing fast and loose with the truth there because, yes, people like the idea of Medicare for all because Medicare sounds good because 
people don't understand that Medicare is going to bankrupt. It is on on a a trajectory to eventually bankrupt this country. No, no one ever wants to say it or talk about it, but I mean, we're you know we're, we're what what happens when we're thirty trillion in debt? We're heading there. We're going to get there. How about fifty trillion in debt? You, you think at some point it's too much? What happens when interest rates rise? What does that do to the rest of the productive economy? We have to just keep paying off money that we've already, paying off the borrowing costs for money that we've already borrowed. But as long as you don't tell people that you're going to have to raise the taxes of the middle class, you know, at a 50, 60%, then you maybe can get Medicare for all, at least for a while. And the government will start to break down. The system won't work. People won't get care in a timely fashion, you know then they're going to say, oh, well, why do we have Medicare for all, which has cost sharing and which does not cover all necessary treatments and states kick in money for there's that's then Medicare becomes single payer. Obamacare was to get us to Medicare for all. Medicare for all is to get us a single payer. This is the plan. This is where the Democratic Party is. And to put people in charge of decision making for businesses, for the economy who don't know a darn thing. I mean, are just buffoons. That should be troubling. That should be troubling to people as just as Americans. I mean, that should be troubling to us as people that want the best for our country. This does go beyond typical partisan lines in some ways, because if you have someone who adopts AOC's philosophy in the White House, which means Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and who knows who else, Sanders is the number two Democrat right now in the polls. Biden is number one, which I think I, I don't, you, you've been hearing it here for a while. I don't think Biden's going to be anything near the the uh, the the threat to win this thing that the left thinks he is. I just I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Um, but Bernie or somebody who adopts Bernie's platform is just maybe a little younger, a little a little more a little more pep in their step. Now you have a full-on socialist as president of the United States. And think about the way that Barack Obama went around the Congress and really abused presidential power and what the next one, who's an open socialist, might do. These are uh, interesting times to be alive, but they are also consequential times for this nation, my friends. So we need to keep a focus on this thing. Uh, I want to talk a little more about where this, we're not going to impeach Trump effort, what I think about that. Uh, also, we'll be joined by my buddy Raheem Kassam about the assault on uh, Tucker Carlson's career that's underway right now from the uh, Media Matters, which is just one of the most despicable organizations in, in public life in this country. It really is. Um, but we'll talk about where that goes and what's going to happen there. Uh, also, I'm trying to think of you know, a little more on the Ilhan Omar controversy, although I think we've pretty much I think we get it Democrats don't really have standards they just have uh, temporary tantrums that help them politically and they'll throw them when it's a Republican and they'll throw up roadblocks when it's a Democrat that's in trouble uh, more of, of all that coming up I think it is a mistake and I've said all along that uh, I don't think uh, Bob Mueller should rely on written answers uh, when you get written answers from a witness, it's really the lawyer's answers as much as the client's answer. I also think that the special counsel feels some time pressure to uh, conclude uh, his work uh, and knowing that the White House would drag out a fight over the subpoena. I do think ultimately it's a mistake uh, because probably the best way to get the truth would be to put the president under oath. 
because as he's made plain in the past, uh, he feels it's perfectly fine to lie to the public. Shifty Schiff is a disgrace to Congress. Unfortunately, he's not alone among Democrats who are disgraces to Congress, so I don't think we're going to see some groundswell to uh, you know, primary him or get him out soon because he is the pro-Muller probe attack dog for the left. And that's why when he starts to do these things, when he criticizes, says, oh, the Mueller probe shouldn't rely on written answers and, and they need to get Trump under oath, he's setting up the, the out clause for when the Mueller probe does not give the left what has been promised all along here. He's, he's setting that up. He's setting it up so that when it turns out there was no collusion, he can say, well, if only they had done the following things, maybe we would have gotten the answers. Because you see, Schiff knows better than Mueller does. He wants you to believe how to get these answers and get to the truth. Because the only truth has to be that Donald Trump is terrible. Donald Trump is an evil, bad man, and they must destroy Trump however they can, whenever they can. That's all that matters to them. Dersh, on the other hand, is saying, uh, yeah, of course the president shouldn't sit down for a perjury trap interview with the just insanely aggressive headhunters of the Mueller probe. Uh, Play 13. Uh, I think it was the right decision made by Trump's lawyers to answer questions and not to allow the client to fall into a perjury trap. Remember, a perjury trap can result from giving truthful testimony. If the president gave absolutely truthful testimony and Michael Cohen contradicted him and the prosecutors decided to believe Michael Cohen, that would be a perjury trap. So I see no reason for the president to sit down to have a live testimony. He's not going to do it. That was made clear right from the beginning. And so this is just a political tactic. That's all it is. But, you know, that's all this has been all along. This is a political tactic. Uh, The damage that has been done to this country and to our sense of fairness and decency and fair play from within the Justice Department because of the left's freak out because Hillary lost the 2016 election. It's hard to overstate how much damage has really been done. We are going to be living with this for a long time. And I think that the deterioration is, is going to continue. But. We've got much more coming up, team. Stay with me. I think a perfect example of how special interests and the powerful have pitted white working class Americans against brown and black working class Americans in order to just screw over all working class Americans is Reaganism in the 80s when he started talking about welfare queens. He was painting this photo, he was painting this like really resentful vision of essentially uh, black women who were doing nothing that were sucks on our country. Colin Reagan a racist. More or less, pitting white working class people against other working class people, uh, people of, of other ethnicities. Uh, this, is, this is going to be our task, fighting back against the lies of Ocasio-Cortez. Is she smart? No, she is not smart. Does she know what she's talking about? No, she does not. Is she an ignoramus? Absolutely, she is. Is she powerful? Is she dangerous? Unfortunately, the answers to those questions are both yes. She is someone who we do not have the luxury of pushing aside, ignoring, 
I'm telling you, if she were old enough right now, they would have her run for president and it would be interesting because the, the media is so, remember, they, they, they were a little bit, and you're going to see a lot of this over the course of the 2020 election, there was a little bit of a sense of the media, could, they knew that Hillary was going to win and so and they thought they could kind of just ha-ha at Trump. But yeah, they tried to take him down with the Billy Bush and, and some other stuff, but they, they thought they were in really good shape. This time around, they will be in a full-on panic and, do any, and they will be hysterical to do anything to make sure that Donald Trump does not win. And, and if they could have someone like an AOC, they would hold her up and there would be no, uh, there, there would be nothing that she could do or say that they would not find some way to either make it, make it fine or you know, tell us that she didn't say it, whatever they have to do. She's not the only one, though. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is really running on a socialist, anti-capitalist message. And she's concerning, too. Play clip five. What I'm saying is we've got to break these guys apart. You want to run a platform? That's fine. You don't get to run a whole bunch of the businesses as well. You want to run a business? That's fine. You don't get to run the platform. Who is the federal government to tell these companies they have to do that? Uh, there's antitrust law that's been around for more than 100 years. And the federal government has done this many times. I believe in markets. Markets that work, markets that have a cop on the beat and have real rules and everybody follows them. I believe in a level playing field. So if you get labeled as a socialist. Well, it's just wrong. It's not wrong. But notice how they're going to walk away from the label because they the Democrats always have to hide their true intentions to the American public. Whether it's Warren or AOC, they will tell us they are something other than that which they are. They will advocate for socialist policies, but they'll say that they are just Democrats who are trying to get a fair deal for America or whatever it may be. We are in for uh, quite a fight with the far left in this country, and we are just in the early stages of it. The debate when you're you're saying something that's just patently untrue. I mean, obviously stating their policy de- positions. But, but is not Democrats don't. Untrue. But Democrats don't hate Jewish people. It's just silly. It's not true. I think so, they should call out their members by name, and we've made that clear. I don't have anything further. Yeah, yeah. April. President, but President, you know, Sorry, he, he, April rhetoric Biden. after Charlottesville, saying that there are very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville, essentially suggesting that there are very fine people. In the Nazis. Uh, That's not at all what the president was stating. Not not then, not not at any point. The president has been incredibly clear and consistently and repeatedly condemned hatred, bigotry, racism in all of its forms, whether it's in America or anywhere else. And to say otherwise is simply untrue. Acosta doing his usual pundit slash journo thing there. I pretend to be a pundit, but really having an argument with the uh, CNN, senior CNN correspondent. By the way, J- uh, what's his name? Jeff Zucker, my old buddy. Uh, he just come. He just came out of the weekend and just threw Fox News on the bus. Says Fox News is a propaganda network. Says that it's hurting the country. Uh, essentially, it's a bad place. Says that the good journalists at Fox News should get no credit for being there, even though they're doing good work because they're at Fox News. So, you know, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum and, and Chris Wallace and others who are over there, they don't get a pass because they work at Fox. This is the head of CNN, folks. And we're in the middle of a media war. That's what this is. It's a media war that is ramping up even more because of the 2020 election. But this is no longer about different views and opinions and we're all journos and just sharing information, environment, democracy. This is destroy the other side, crush 
my enemies by ruining their careers, by getting them fired, by defaming them publicly. That's what we're up against here. And that's also why, you know, Jim Acosta is trying so very hard to, to make it seem like, well, last week, because, you know, the left hated that, you know, Ilhan Omar caused this problem for them where she said stuff that's just, it is anti-Semitic. I mean, it, it, those are the rules. The rules are what she said are anti-Semitic. I mean, we could say that we're going to change what we consider to be anti-Semitic, but it was too late for them, right? She said stuff that's anti-Semitic, dual loyalty and control of money and control of the world through money and all this stuff that she said about the Jews and about Israel, that is classic anti-Semitic stuff, and the left couldn't really get around it. And so what they've now managed to do with this uh, attack on on Tucker Carlson and then with the, uh, which I'll tell more, I'll talk to you more about that and we'll have my friend Raheem Kassam joining to get into that. Uh, but the attack on Tucker and and this effort to focus one—I mean, I've heard so many times from the left. Whenever the left really gets in trouble, they just go Charlottesville. They just start yelling about Charlottesville all the time. Um, but here's what the president said about the Charlottesville protesters. I mean, we we pulled this audio just to be sure. Play 18. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Now, in the other group also, you had some fine people, but you also had troublemakers, and you see them come with the, with the black outfits and with the helmets and with the baseball bats. You, got a, you, had, a lot of bad, you had a lot of bad people in the other group. So... I, I always thought, and I, I could be wrong here, that what Trump was trying to speak to was that initially this whole fight in Charlottesville was about pulling down a monument. And I think Trump was speaking to that there are, in the debate over pulling down monuments, good people on both sides of that issue. And I think that's a fair point because I can see, you know, I, I see both sides, depending on the circumstances, the incident, I can at least see both sides of the argument. I tend to be very opposed to uh, destroying history. But I also think that, you know, it, there's a little bit of hypocrisy on the right sometimes. And we applaud people that will pull down a statue of 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 Lenin and say, isn't that great? But then if somebody pulls down a statue in this country, we're told, you know, well, uh, it, depending on what the statue is, people say, you, know, well, you, you shouldn't do that. That's our history. Well, should it be in a museum or should it be in a public park? That's not the same thing. I'm just saying that there is an argument to be had here. Um, I don't think that he was trying to say that there are any good neo-Nazis, but that is what the left has always turned this uh, turned this into. And that's the way that they've tried to continuously. I mean, that is the number one talking point that the left will go to to really undermine not just Trump, but any of his supporters. And they really will say that Trump is is a uh, supporter of, of neo-Nazis and white nationalists. This is where they go. This is they think the single most powerful rebuke of this president I just think it's crazy. Trump is not uh, not somebody who anybody who knows him, anybody who's lived lived, you know, around him with him, you know, is is not a a racist and a neo-Nazi supporter in the way that the left holds him out to be. But look at what we've already done here. They've shifted the conversation away from what a Democrat who is a black female Muslim and a refugee uh, who came to this country. So she's got all of this stuff that they will they will defend her and, and she's to be defended because of these things. 
um, and and not held to the same standard that, say, a white male Republican would be. And we all just know that that's true. But instead of talking about that, we're here having a conversation once again about Trump and Charlottesville. And this is where Jim Acosta. It, it's just so easy, isn't it? Any Anytime you want to get a standing ovation from the left wing CNN crowd, you just have to say something about Charlottesville. Um, and yeah, by the way, Huck Sanders spoke about Omar's comments. I thought that this was a good overview of the subject from her. Play 19. The president's been an unwavering and committed ally to Israel and the Jewish people. And uh, frankly, the remarks that have been made by a number of Democrats and failed to be called out by Democrat leadership is frankly abhorrent and it's sad. And it's something that uh, should be called by name. It shouldn't be put in a watered down resolution. It should be done the way the Republicans did it when Steve King made terrible comments. We called it out by name. We stripped him of his committee memberships, and we'd like to see Democrats follow suit. No consequences for Ilhan Omar. We all know that's the case. And the resolution the Democrats voted on was just, it was just all kinds of hate is bad. We don't like hate. We don't need the, the Democrat members of Congress. We don't need any members of Congress to tell us that hate is bad. Thank you very much. We've, we've already got that figured out. Um, but uh, Tlaib, Congresswoman Tlaib, she took it a step further here and even was willing to blame Islamophobia for the way that people reacted to Omar's anti-Semitism. Play 20. This past week, I feel and I know this would be somewhat shocking for some, but I think Islamophobia is very much among the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. And I know that's hard for people to hear, but there's only been four members of Congress that are of Muslim faith. Three of them currently serve in this institution. More of us need to get elected, but more of us need to understand as we come into this this institution that I have a lot of work to do with my colleagues. So you think Democrats have some Islamophobia and that's at the root of some of this consternation? I think our country is struggling with it. What the left is really going to struggle with is how much anti-Semitism there is in the Islamic world and how that translates into Islamic discourse among some even in this country. The left doesn't have an answer for that one. That's going to be an interesting uh, continuing source of friction and and conflict. Uh, For now, it might be it might be an easy way to get past the issue for them to say, oh, it's Islamophobic. And that's why Rashida Tlaib, I mean, uh, Ilhan Omar was getting in trouble this past week. But from what we know, anybody would have got in trouble for Ilhan Omar said anybody would have. Ilhan Omar got in a lot less trouble. So I don't know how that's an Islamophobic issue. If anything, it's a, a special consideration of the fact that she is Islamic. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about the, the Tucker Carlson controversy with Media Matters coming up here in just a minute. Um, and I just I just do want to say that uh, there are some of these groups out there and and the left really excels in this area. They really put a lot of resources in this where they they have people whose only careers uh, are the destruction of other people's careers in media. I mean, that is what they do. They're just out. They're leftists who are hunting for scalps. And I find the people who work for those organizations to be disgusting. I find people who work for Media Matter for America 
and and uh, people who are in the more aggressive components of uh, moveon.org and and I can't even name all these different groups. I mean, all but these are some of the ones that are out there. Uh, they are just absolutely disgraceful. And the people who work in them should be ashamed of what they do day in and day out. I mean, can you imagine what a total loser you have to be to sit around and listen to radio interviews that Tucker Carlson did 10 years ago so that you can hope today you can create enough outrage to drive sponsors away from his show so that he'll be fired as if that's going to stop as if that's going to stop anything I man i think tucker is actually very very good at his job and as you know i like tucker but they put another talented conservative in that spot at eight o'clock and th- that person's going to have three million people a night watching them and driving the national conversation on the right and you know and the list i mean i could name a dozen people off the top of my head who would do it very well i mean whether you think they do it as well as tucker or not it's a different issue but this doesn't solve anything this is just petty vindictive spite from the left that is just full of people who are so unhappy and so indecent and i would say they're sad but it's increasingly hard for me to have sympathy for them because they're destructive and they're sadistic and they want people to get fired and they want to call people racist when they know they're not really racist they want to hold people you know uh up for ridicule to drag them on social media to mock them uh, on their own shows and and to do these fraudulent astroturf campaigns to make advertisers get scared you know this is really common on the left they really embrace this and it's just these people have no honor it's one of the things i I can't decide if it makes me want to you know leave this business or if it makes me want to fight even harder some days because the individuals that are involved in this, the people that work for David Brock and people that used to work at, at Gawker, for example, which was just out there to just slam and destroy people and humiliate them. I don't know how these people sleep at night. You know, and, and some of what you see even from these left-wing groups, you know, the, 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 the Young Turks and the Daily Kos, and these are just bad people with, with no decency integrity mercy honor they're just not worthwhile human beings they need to do a lot of work on themselves and that's the backdrop for for me the tucker comments which i i will freely admit i was surprised that tucker said them and i i don't think that they were good or funny comments you will never hear me and have never heard me nor will you ever hear me making similar comments on a show of any kind um but you know, Tucker made some choices back in the day, and I stand behind his decision not to cave to the outrage mob, not to give in to these people who don't want an apology. They just want to destroy him. So why does he have to humiliate himself? Why should he have to set up the scaffolding and the noose, so to speak, for his own career? No, no, I'm sorry. If he goes out, if he goes down, he should do so standing up and fighting. Just like how I say to all you, if I ever go out, if I ever go down, damn it, I'm going down with my shield high. We'll be right back. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's already in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him to burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, blink video clips sent to the police to help convict the crooks. 
In a moment, I'll tell you how to get 20% off all Blink Outdoor XT camera systems. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free. They set up in minutes and run on two lithium batteries that last up to two years. And Blink's live feed options lets you monitor your home and check in on kids and pets from anywhere using your Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable. And right now, Blink Outdoor XT camera systems are an impressive 20% off. But hurry, this sale ends March 16th at midnight Eastern. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash sale. That's BlinkProtect.com slash sale. Again, BlinkProtect.com slash sale. Blink Outdoor XD cameras, 20% off, folks. Blink is an Amazon company, and it works with Alexa. So Media Matters strikes again. They have gone after, this time, Tucker Carlson, going back, I think, over a decade and having their little minions listen to interviews that Tucker gave on a shock jock radio show in which he said some things that were definitely inappropriate, definitely don't agree with the the sentiments that that he shared, but it was also 10 years ago. He was on a shock jock radio show, and who really cares? And I mean that in the honest sense. Who cares about this other than the people who are trying to use this as an opportunity to destroy Tucker Carlson? I've taken the position very publicly and gotten a lot of heat for this, that we now live in a a world where if you apologize, you just give them more ammunition against you, that you should only apologize if your own conscience, your own sense of honor requires it, that apology does not get you anything from the other side. There's no good faith. But I want to bring on a friend of mine who's also a fighter out there on the front lines for conservatism and against this leftist lunacy. Raheem Kassam joins us now. He's also the global editor-in-chief of Human Events, the publication that he now runs and has taken over. And big congrats on that, Raheem. Thank you, Buck. I really appreciate that. Uh, so everybody can check out the new the new Human Events on humanevents.com. But first, Raheem, what do you think about this Tucker? What do you think about this Tucker controversy? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm somebody, and I suppose I can't do it on your show, um, but I'm somebody who uh, I suppose X and Jets quite a lot. Um, in the in the British uh, tradition of linguistics and, and, and in the tradition of it, and I'm sorry about the background noise, by the way, I'm here, here in Washington, D.C. Um, in our tradition, you use it as a, as, a, as a device for emphasis. You use it as a device uh, by which you can lay claim to some irony as part of the conversation. Now, since the, um, since the 60s and the 70s, you've had this liberal push uh, for having uh, more... Uh, leeway in that regard. I mean, we all remember George Carlin, the seven dirty words you can't say on television. Uh, we've heard Joe Biden talking about uh, Obamacare as a big effing deal. You, you know, you've seen it all. Now, when the right does it, especially the right who were raised under those you know, liberal decades of power in terms of culture, which, by the way, we're still in, apparently it's unacceptable. Now, I didn't see particularly anything, and I've studied these Tucker Carlson clips at length, since Media Matters dropped them yesterday. I didn't see anything in there that was particularly earnest in its offensiveness, and I didn't see anything in there that particularly led me to believe that Tucker was espousing uh, anything of of, of poor morality. And what I mean by that is that if you take the context of the conversations, as you say, they were conversations that he was having with a shock jock, right? You take the context of the conversations into account, and you ignore the uh, the quick 
thing that's been cleverly done by Media Matters, you actually get the picture that here is somebody who is using uh, rhetorical and linguistic devices uh, to further conversations. Now, are they good ones? Perhaps not. But they are ones nonetheless. Churchill was known to do this. He would swear all the time. I say all the time, but he would regularly swear. Um, and he'd use it as a means by which to shape the conversation, to highlight certain things, to emphasize certain things. So I think there are, there are two things to consider here. Is this new? Uh, and should we be offended? Not really. And whose fault is it? If we don't like it, we have to point the finger squarely at the liberal left who introduced this language into our common discourse. What do you think about the way that Tucker has handled it? He put out a, a statement. Let me see if I can pull it up right here. Uh, where he essentially says there will be no apology, that if people have a problem with me, uh, then they can come on my show or they can watch my show, but I- I'm not going to play uh, play this game. What do you think about that as an approach to these kinds of uh, controversy? Uh, here he goes, uh, anyone who is who disagrees with my views, welcome, welcome to come on and explain why. And uh, that's pretty much what he's got. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's entirely right. I mean, look, he's got a, he's got a, one of the largest shows in the country, one of the largest audiences in the country, and he's somebody who feels confident enough that he could hold his own against somebody who might debate him over this. And I think, knowing, knowing him and knowing his staff, I think they will be actively uh, soliciting the best debater on the political left to come on and, and talk about this stuff with Tucker, because that's... He understands uh, that that is the way to, to, to defer, deflect, and explain uh, these, these, some of these pointless and fruitless allegations that are routinely hurled at us. I mean, let's not forget, Buck, um, Ralph Northam is still the governor of Virginia. Let's not forget that people who, who covered for Roman Polanski are still at large in Hollywood. And we've never had to have full-throated, honest, open debates about those things. Um, but yet, Tucker is still offering to do that. So I think not only has he taken the smart strategic ground, he's actually taken the moral high ground in saying that he's willing uh, to have these conversations out. What do you think about your approach going forward, Raheem, as somebody like me who has to fight against, you know, we're, we're, we are fighting in an uphill battle media environment where we are judged by different standards than the left will be. And they will find ways to, at some point, if they have not already, I mean, I've been dragged. I don't know if you've ever been dragged. I've certainly been dragged a few times for different things. Uh, How do do you approach these matters? I mean, do you feel like the answer is no retreat, no surrender, or what? Look, I've I've never been one to apologize. And and the one time that I was ever asked to do it, uh, and I did as as a matter of a favor to someone else, I immediately regretted it because it then led... To, to a litany of abuse and demands for apologies for other things. You know, we, we, we've got to get over this old mindset that somehow uh, we occupy the moral high ground by saying, I'm sorry for holding, either holding opinions or being part of popular discussions and, and, and general uh, uh, you know, chatter that anybody else would have. This is one of the things that we've forgotten, is that it's not just, it's not just the fact that these public figures are doing this stuff. 
It's that actually most people in the country at some point have either lost their tempers or talked like this in some way, shape or form. And that's not saying that everyone does it or even that it's okay. But we've forgotten and, and our political figures have forgotten, our public figures have forgotten and our media figures have forgotten what it is to be an ordinary person. And so I think Tucker's approach to this is that of an ordinary person. Um, and I think everybody should make uh, uh, those, those sorts of no apologies mindsets uh, to the way they go about political discourse what are your thoughts on i i make it pretty clear on a regular basis what i think about it's not just media matters there's this whole uh kind of left-wing activist online presence of people who are in some ways some of them are associated with some some think tanks or some nonprofits. media matters is a nonprofit, which is just a total scam uh others are people that are specifically hired. I mean, CNN, for example, employs people whose only job day in and day out is to attack conservatives in media. That That is what they do. That is their role in life. I just think that these people are, and, I don't know what else to say. It's not that I disagree with them. I think that they're disgusting and pathetic. Yeah, and, and to remember, and to call tech companies and have people banned, you know, CNN actually has quote-unquote reporters that do that as their day, day-to-day job. Um, look, this is, this is uh, um, Alinsky 101. Uh, we've shown weakness. They will attack the weakness. We have historically been willing uh, to apologize for things that we should never be apologizing for. And so an industry has built up around those things. I think, I hope, uh, that with this example from Tucker, um, and, and to some extent as well, the should mark over some of Judge Jeanine Pirro's comments over this weekend also. I hope that the refusal to apologize uh, for making, making either whatever it may be, whether it be ironic statements or completely coherent and factual statements um, uh, and jokes, in fact, I hope the refusal will make us, the rest of us, all of us, uh, draw a line under previous weaknesses that we've shown um, and therefore put that industry, that, what is effectively a hate industry, a hatred of free speech industry, out of business. Raheem Kassam, everybody, global editor-in-chief of the new and updated Human Events, humanevents.com, to see what he is up to. Also, Raheem Kassam on Twitter. Raheem, my friend, great to have you on. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you again. Team, we'll be right back. You're probably familiar with AARP. You or someone you know might already be a member, but did you know that the AARP stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners, and was all about left-wing politics. Guess what? I recommend AMAC. Why AMAC? Well, your investment in AMAC allows them to act for good policy for this country. The AMAC difference is that they've held over a 1,000 face-to-face meetings with key decision-makers in D.C., including senators and influencers at the White House, and over 1.5 million Americans have joined AMAC, and that number is growing. Plus, you get great discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, all kinds of benefits. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. One more time, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. Look, we're $22 trillion in debt. We have trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. 
and we need to do something about it. This budget puts forward $2.7 trillion in spending reductions over the next 10 years and balances within 15 years. We think that's an important debate to have. Congress may resist it, but we also think that they uh, have an interest and in, we hope they have an interest in, in uh, maintaining, in, in getting rid of the deficit. So that was Russell Vout, who is the acting OMB budget director, talking about the president's budget, which the very short version of here is that we will increase military spending. Uh, There'll be $8 billion for a while, and there'll be, over time, spending reductions of $2.7 trillion with cuts to uh, Medicare and Medicaid. That's... That's that's the very quick and dirty on the budget. And I'm just here to say that the the president right now is is pushing forward a a budget. It's never going to be law. So this is just a philosophical conversation, really. You know, this is a, a flashpoint for debate right now, but it will not turn into a bill that is made into a law. This is just going to be what the this is what the president is putting forward, which really matters as a document of of the thoughts of the Republican Party going into 2020. But $2.7 trillion in spending reductions over 10 years, balances within 15 years, that's really all meaningless, isn't it? Because Trump's not going to be president in 10 years. He might not even be president, heaven forbid, in two years. So balancing a budget within 15 years doesn't really have any meaning. And $22 trillion in debt is eye-popping. I mean, that is truly discouraging about the long-term financial viability for the system that we have in place, and I I mean that. But Republicans on this issue don't want to have, they don't want to make the case, they don't want to have the fight. You know, Larry Kudlow, whom I I think is a very, is a smart guy and is a, from all the things I'm told, a very, very nice guy. uh, He said the following, play clip nine. If you want to deal with budget deficits, you've got rapid growth, which means keep the tax cuts in place. We believe the 3% growth rate of 2018 will continue in 2019 and beyond 2020 and so forth. I think uh, the other element is always to limit spending. And the president is proposing um, roughly a 5% across the board reduction in domestic spending accounts. It will be a tough budget. We're going to do our own caps this year. And I think it's long overdue. Some of these recent budget deals have not been favorable towards uh, spending. So I think it's exactly the right prescription. Tax cuts in place. Hmm. Well, that's the one thing the Republican Party seems capable of getting through these days and getting done. Keeping the tax cuts in place. Huh? That's the way to deal with the budget deficits. Uh, it's going to be a little bit a little bit of faith, faith based economics, I think, involved here. I know people say, oh, Bach growth and supply side, Reagan, all this good stuff here's the bottom line, all right? There's there's no realistic way that you can crunch the numbers or fudge the numbers that we aren't, as a country, continuously, year in and year out, spending more money than we take in by a vast sum, something around the in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars a year now. It is obviously very popular for people who want to stay in power to continue to overdraw America's national account, so to speak, by writing the the check from the Treasury 
to pay for programs that we cannot pay for as we go along. It is not going to be popular to be the president or the party who who says, you know what, we can't keep doing this anymore. And so this is why we are on a glide path to financial ruin. People also don't want to hear it. I, I came into media during the time of the Tea Party. I remember the fervor and the fear that a lot of people had for what would happen to this country unless we started to have a smaller and more responsible government. And at the very, very center of that was spending. Now we have the president's budget put forward. We all know that the overwhelming likelihood is that the Democrats and the Republicans will pass some kind of continuing resolution or some kind of omnibus, you know, some some budgetary maneuver where everyone, the automatic spending stays and they stuff a bunch of little things here and there to buy off different constituencies into the thing. And, and nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to change. Um, Trump wants $8 billion. billion. Uh, he wants $8 billion for the wall, which is more than he was asking for last time around. That's what he says, though. Here is what uh, OMB director, acting OMB director, says about that. Play 11. We do have an $8.6 billion request to Congress to, to complete the wall. This is in addition to the uh, billions of dollars that uh, we are securing through the president's declaration of a national emergency. As you know, this is an area where we're getting tired of being right. The border situation is, de- is deteriorating by the day. When we started the conversation uh, throughout last year, uh, Democrats were saying that there was no national emergency. They're still saying that. But I don't know how you can continue to make that assertion when the Department of Homeland Security Secretary and the Commissioner of the Customs and Border Patrol continue to go to the Hill and say that we are having record numbers of apprehensions and we will be having more apprehensions in the first six months than we did in the entirety of last year. Here's a budget guy who's telling you what you know from this show already, which is that the numbers don't lie. The numbers are are surging. And it, it is out of control. The system is overwhelmed. And the people who have been saying otherwise, I mean, they, they've been lying. Let's just say what it is. They have been lying to you. They have been lying to the American people. They feel no shame about this. In fact, they feel uh, self-righteous about their lies. They feel like they're good people for the lies that they tell because it's all for the cause. And the cause is a de facto open border at our southern border that will provide votes for the Democrat Party and power for the left and enough power to take over this country for the rest of our lifetimes, folks. That's what's that's what's at stake here. Uh, a single party majority for the next you know 50 to 100 years. And, and who knows what the country looks like or how we're doing vis-a-vis China. You know, nobody knows what the future is. But I do know that the immediate future is going to be very bad for the Republican Party unless we can figure out what what is a feasible plan to tackle the debt and make that case the American people? But Trump is not making this case, folks. The two point seven trillion in spending reductions, you gotta make cuts now or else no one really is gonna listen to anything. And I know people say the cuts aren't aren't popular, but that's why no one makes cuts. You can't leave the cuts for somebody else. You know, you can't leave the the going to the gym for somebody else to do for you. You've gotta do it, right? So between the border and the budget. Man, Trump's going to have his work cut out for him, not just to try to win re-election, but for the next four years, because there are storm clouds gathering here, and this stuff cannot be ignored much longer. 
The immigration crisis at our southern border keeps getting worse. We now are on a path, as I have been telling you, to a million, a million illegal aliens of one kind or another in the country this year. Um, That is an astonishing number. And some people are taking note of the reality that I've been bringing to your attention here, including some whom I think are pretty, uh, pretty wrong on a lot of other issues. But David Frum, over at The Atlantic, uh, wrote a pretty decent piece where he lays out what has really been going on with immigration in this country. And there's a lot of all the stuff that's great about immigrants, and that's all fine. I'm, I'm, I'm not, and nor do I believe the Republican Party is anti-immigrant at all. I am pro-immigrant. I am also pro-sovereignty and rule of law, and so therefore I have issues with illegal immigration. And I also think that a society that has a whole slew of very important laws that it refuses to enforce undermines its right and its ability to enforce a lot of other laws that are out there too. But from, first of all, sets up some important context here. He says that uh, rather than fading into history, immigration has only been accelerating from 1990 to 2015, 44 million people left the global south to find new homes in the global north. They came from Latin America, Africa, and Asia. They came to the United States above all, uh, but to the nations of Europe too. The United Kingdom has received nearly as many immigrants relative to its population as the United States has. Germany and Sweden have received more. Some 45 million foreign-born people now make their home in the United States. About 11 million to 12 million live, live here illegally. Well, he's wrong about the 11 to 12 million, but the rest of that is basically true. Um, and and I, it's worth noting that he's wrong. This is a guy who's pulling all the numbers and trying to make a, a pretty tight case about the problems around immigration right now in this country. Really, I should say a lot of the challenges posed by immigration, too. But he's wrong on that 11 11 million number. And I would just say this. uh, This is unprecedented. What the country is facing right now, what it's dealing with in terms of the pressures on assimilation and the pressures on our society overall, we have never had anything like this before. He writes, year by year, immigration numbers may shift up or down, but decade by decade, immigration is remaking nations on a world-altering scale. Large-scale immigration comes with considerable social and political costs, and these must be accounted for, end quote. This is all true. And this is what the left refuses to not even accept. They refuse to address this in this country. They act like immigration is just, and I keep saying immigration I'm really more focused on the illegal immigration component, but there's a conversation as well about immigration overall. But they think that immigration is always good. More immigration is always better. There is no drawback to immigration. There is no uh, downside to immigration. And that anybody who brings up these issues is a bad person. But then you might say, Buck, hold on a second. What about some of the people that the left loves who have said that there are costs to immigration? For example, back in 2015, Bernie Sanders said, quote, what right wing people in this country would love is an open border policy. 
bring in all kinds of people, work for 2 or $3 an hour. That would be great for them. I don't believe in that. I think we have to raise wages in this country. In Barack Obama's 2006 book, The Audacity of Hope, he said, quote, when I see Mexican flags waved at pro-immigration demonstrations, I sometimes feel a flush of patriotic resentment. When I'm forced to use a translator to communicate with the guy fixing my car, I feel a certain frustration, end quote. Are, are Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama racist? Was it racist when they said that stuff then? Or is this just, like everything else we see here, there's really no standards. There's just defeat the other side, win the fight, change the, change the standards, change the facts, change reality, as long as it hurts the other guys. In this case, the right. Speaking of changing the reality and the right, and these are some of the examples that David Frum, in this piece, like David Frum is a very, he's a very self-satisfied fellow and he is horrible on the issue of guns, which he knows very little about. And is real. I've, I've, I've interviewed the guy kind of, I wouldn't really say debated him, just poked him a little bit during an interview. And he's a very smug fellow, but he's a, he's a good writer. And on immigration, he at least thinks pretty clearly. He does. And I always say that I, I give credit where it's due. And I support people where I think they deserve support. And very few liberals... Uh, these days. And I, from, I don't know, he probably thinks he's a classical liberal or something. I forget how he self-identifies. Uh, but but from is one who will break from the left-wing consensus, which, I mean, the left-wing consensus on immigration now is that there's no problem, more is better, anyone who disagrees is a racist. There's no crisis. Anyone who says there's an issue here is a racist. That's what the left has turned into an immigration. And they will lie. For example, in this past fall, when there were 7,000 people in a caravan, he points out that Chris Hayes said, quote, this whole caravan in the last week of the election is a giant lie. This is Trump's Reichstag fire. It is a lie. No, it wasn't a lie. The lie was Chris Hayes going on national TV saying it's a lie. That that was the lie. That was the, the lie. Um, but here is the, the bigger point that from is getting to and I, I this piece is worthwhile it is worth reading there's some parts of it i disagree with but there are some parts of it that really need to be part of our our conversation about immigration i think we on this show have one of the more in-depth and sophisticated discussions of what the heck is really happening in this country when it comes to illegal immigration and more broadly immigration policy overall but he points out that when you look at the numbers for how many people are going to uh, grow up soon in some of these countries of the third world that would probably be very happy to come to America and how much easier it is to get to America now from, say, Bangladesh or Egypt or, or Guatemala than it was even a few decades ago. I mean, air travel is much faster and cheaper. In Guatemala, you could probably obviously get here by foot, but you know, for, for countries around the world, um, it has gotten a lot, a lot easier. And he said, for example, Egypt will add 50 million people to its population over the next three decades. Bangladesh will reach 200 million. Pakistan, 300 million. The populations of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador rise by 50% by 2050, which is to more than 47 million all in. 26 African countries will double their population by the time today's college seniors celebrate their 50th birthday. The population of Africa in 2050 will be almost equal to the entire population of the world in 1950, 2.5 billion people and here's the key question folks this is what the liberals have no answer to whatsoever what happens when it's not just one person he writes or a thousand people or a million people who want to move 
What happens when it's tens or hundreds of millions knocking on the doors of the developed world? And what happens when those vast numbers of newcomers arrive, not in mass production economies whose factories and mills need every pair of hands they can hire, but in modern knowledge economies that struggle to achieve full employment and steady wage growth? This is a a, a critical point, a critical point. Uh, We are talking about a knowledge-based economy now and a lot of people showing up who, quite honestly, have very limited knowledge, especially in terms of the professional sphere that they could compete in. And this story, here's another big lie that the immigrants who uh, the the immigrants and illegal immigrants who come here because they'll pay Medicare and Social Security taxes, that will save us. That will save entitlements, you're told all the time. No, it won't. They get sick, too. They get old, too. These are just more people that are getting plopped on top of an already groaning, straining and soon to collapse entitlement system. And then finally, and this is the key point, this is why I said uh, this is a really this is a good piece. Americans also need to rethink asylum policy. If unemployment, poverty or disorder in your home country qualifies you for asylum, then hundreds of millions of people qualify, even though none of them have been targeted by the kind of state sponsored persecution that asylum laws were originally written to redress. And then he writes, without immigration restrictions, there are no national borders. Without national borders, there are no nation states. Without nation states, there are no electorates. Without electorates, there is no democracy. If liberals insist that only fascists will enforce borders, then voters will hire fascists to do the job liberals refuse to do, end quote. I mean, his little jab there about fascists, obviously, and poking at Donald Trump is stupid and childish and unnecessary. But his point about how libs won't enforce borders and what that means, that is true. And that is where we are right now. Make no mistake about it. But the whole issue of the wall and border security is of paramount importance. We have a crisis down there. I think the president has made that case very effectively. Um, it's a crisis of um, economics. It's a crisis of crime and drugs. It's a crisis of humanity. We have to be much tougher and have more constructive immigration policy, which we will be developing uh, over a period of time. So, yes, he's going to stay with his wall and he's going to stay with the border security theme. I think it's essential. The president's not giving up on the wall, but the wall alone, as I have been telling you, is not enough. I want to try to shed some light on what's really happening behind the scenes here with all these asylum cases and with the bureaucracy that is processing this massive influx of particularly families at the southern border. Uh, To that end, we are joined by Todd Benzman. He is a national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. Todd, thanks so much for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So we're hoping you can give us some sense uh, of, of what you are hearing from your, your contacts in the government side about what's, what's really happening with these asylum cases, how quickly are they being processed, what kind of claims are being made, and where are we seeing that this whole thing is either breaking down or just a sham? Right. So what I hear is uh, from sources in the uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration um, Service which is the agency responsible for doing credible fear interviews, the very initial screening for uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Central American uh, families that are coming through, family unit members that are coming through. And really what's what, what the way it's explained to me is that uh, the migrants come in knowing in advance what 
stories to say, to what 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 um, claims to make to get them through the initial screening, credible fear, and then right through the catch and release loophole and into the country, so that. Um, Asylum officers who are conducting these thousands and thousands of interviews are hearing the same exact stories uh, down to to the very uh, you know fine granular details of those stories. Uh, they're just saying the same things over and over as though they've been coached in mass or that they sort of learn what to say through osmosis inside the detention centers, and that the uh, mid-level bureaucracy at CIS uh, has removed discretion from the asylum officers to say no, that they are under uh, orders, not written orders, but uh, teleconferenced orders to say yes, uh, 100%. Yes. Now, wh- why would that be? Because obviously we have so many people that are now coming in in this manner and claiming asylum. Wh- why would that be the case? Can't really answer that buck uh you know one one theory uh from from a a source of mine who's on the front lines of this on the inside is that there is a group of cis bureaucrats who uh feel as as though um you know they want as many migrants uh into the country as 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 possible and i i have to say that if you grant approvals in mass, then you also sort of alleviate a bed space shortage. So you just simply move them straight through uh, the orders to move them through within 10 days into the interior, out out of the detention facilities and into the interior by just simply saying yes to all claims and then uh, moving the paperwork through. And that this is supposed to be some kind of an order from uh, mid-level kind of bureaucrats that are uh, maybe Obama holdovers. Wow. So it's almost like the the deep state is active at the border. I know that some people don't like that term, but there are some elements from within the bureaucracy that are certainly not working in tandem with Trump administration policy. It seems likely that, in fact, they're trying to do everything they can to... uh, subvert Trump administration, uh, well, I shouldn't say policy, Trump administration goals, really, because the policy here, I guess, is just the continuation of what the laws on on the books are. just wanted to know, is there anything else, Todd, that, that you're hearing, given how much attention the border's been getting? I think it should be getting even more than it is. Anything else you're hearing that you think is just really important for the folks out there to know about what is really happening down there? No, I mean, really, it's it's just that there's it appears as though there is a, uh, you know, an enabling assembly line that's set up to guarantee the entrance of hundreds of thousands of people who are part of family units, uh, that there, there's really no, no deterring, uh, decision-making or deterring programming to like, say, for example, an airlift back to Honduras, for the no's for the people that are that are turned down and the system is overwhelmed anyway uh but remember in 2014 2015 with the unaccompanied minors uh crisis that we had that was very similar to this the obama administration was able to pretty much put a stop to it by 
loading up aircraft and flying those aircraft to Tegucigalpa and dropping everyone off. And, you know, it's a grapevine. So word gets around that, oh, they're deporting. So that put an end, uh, pretty much put an end to that, that massive crisis. So uh, there's really no kind of programming in place where if asylum officers did say no to credible fear, that there'd be a way to expeditiously deport people back to their home countries. At least not that I've heard of yet, like an airlift. Yeah, well, that's something that's definitely a missing piece here. Todd Benzman of the Center for Immigration Studies, where he's a national security fellow. Todd, appreciate you uh, sharing your uh, perspective on this. Thanks so much for calling in. Sure. we got hour three coming up. I want to tell you folks um, a little vignette from history that really struck me today. And, and I think you'll see some parallels to our current moment in the insanity of it. So stay with me. We will be right back. Don't you love it when you find that $100 bill inside the jacket that you haven't used for ages? It's a great feeling. Well, imagine finding hundreds of dollars in the papers that are sitting in your filing cabinet desk or boxes in your attic. You know, that old 401k paperwork from the job before last, the one you forgot about? That money is sitting there gathering financial dust when it could be working much harder for you in a precious metals IRA. My friends at Noble Gold can see if you qualify and they'll do all the heavy lifting for you, making you thousands and could cost you nothing. Give Noble Gold a call at 877-646-5347 or text my name, Buck, to 511-511 and receive their free investor's guide. Plus, for all qualified IRAs above $20,000, they'll also include a complimentary rare-graded Morgan Silver dollar valued at $150. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com or text BUCK to 511-511 or call 877-646-5347 today. Individual results may vary. Invest wisely. Standard text rates may apply. Some of the more interesting articles I come across these days are found in this uh, journal of, I guess I'd call it controversial opinion, just journal of honest opinion that does not bow to pl- political correctness, known as Quillette. In fact, our friend, friend of the show, Andy No, writes for Quillette. And now there's another piece in here that is a little bit of history. So those of you who've been asking for us to do some history in the show, this will be one just a, a a quick run through a very interesting period in history, but I think you'll also see some comparisons to the present moment. I think you will sense that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of connective tissue between what happened in this period of late 18th century France, talking about the French Revolution, and some of what you're seeing now in our in our current moment. Uh, the left in this country is unhinged, is uh, destructive, wants to destroy all of their enemies, views their policies as really more of a religion, just as the Jacobins and the French revolutionaries of 1793 thought of themselves as just enacting an agenda of, of liberty and freedom— driven by rationality and a destruction of God and the church, by the way. The elevation of the state over the individual was central to the revolutionary ideology of the French Revolution, very different from our own revolution in not just ideas, but also in implementation. That's what I wanted to get into. This is 
uh, a story that I, I wonder how many of you have heard it. I remember it briefly from uh, European history when I was in high school, but it is of the Vendée, some call it the Civil War, others will call it the Vendée Genocide. And this in itself is controversial. What do you call this period in French Revolutionary history? Because the historian Reynald Saker back in 2011, discovered some documents in the National Archives in Paris that described what he had been writing about since the early 1980s. And this is all according to Jaspreet Bapari, or Bapari rather, in Quillet, in this fascinating piece on the Vendée Revolution. I'm sorry, the Vendée Genocide during the French Revolution. And here's what he says in the piece. On March 4, 2011, the historian uh, Reynold Saker discovered documents in the National Archives confirming what he knows in the 1980s. There had been a genocide during the French Revolution. Historians have always been aware of widespread resistance to the revolution, but with a few exceptions, they invariably characterized the rebe rebellion in the Vendée as an abortive civil war rather than a genocide. In 1986, uh, Saker published his initial findings in Le Genocide Franco-Francais, a lightly revised version of his doctoral dissertation. This book sold well, but destroyed any chance he might have had for a university career. Saker was slandered by journalists and academics who, uh, for daring to question the official version of events that had taken place two centuries earlier. The revolution has become too sacred a creation myth for at least some of the French. They do not take kindly to blasphemers. So they have set up a number stretching back for a long time, a number of official historians of the French Revolution in France. And the way that they have covered the Vendée is generally, oh, it was a rebellion and it was put down. Well, there's more to it than that. And again, I'm telling you about this because I think that in, in this moment, when you have a left wing that is emboldened and that is really falling into a state of psychosis, where you can't have normal conversations with them, where they have no mercy, they have no honor, they have no decency. They just view themselves as fighting one existential crisis after another. You know, if you're not all for climate change, if you're not for open borders, you know, you're, you're a monster. That's the approach they take. Well, this is not the first time, certainly in history, uh, that that has led to disastrous outcomes. And the French Revolution is yet another example of this. So let's look at the Vendée for just a few minutes. Back in 1793, the Vendée is in the area of Western France. It's roughly analogous with some of what would be the Loire Valley. Some of you probably enjoy drinking your wine from the Loire Valley. And the Jacobin government, the revolutionary government in Paris, knew that what they were dealing with in the Vendée was considered a, a backwater the hicks of 18th century France, so to speak, were in this Vendée region. And they were the French equivalent of clinging to their Bibles and their guns. They were rural. They very much believed in the Catholic Church and weren't sold on this new enlightenment-based revolutionary, uh, revolutionary doctrine that had been foisted upon them from Paris and the other major cities. But the National Constituent Assembly, which would go through a number of different name changes over time, had nationalized all church property. 
and and then after nationalizing church property, sold and redistributed a lot of it and made the clergy into state employees. So this is, when we talk about the separation of church and state, this is what we're trying to avoid. That the clergy should not be employees of the state for very obvious reasons. The Jacobin government in 1793 did just that. Then the National Constituent Assembly changed to become the National Convention. They kept changing the name of the governing body of these revolutionaries in Paris. And then there was a call from the National Convention for conscription. People were not very happy about this one. So they tried to revolt, and they revolted under the chant of holy freedom, sacred freedom. And in this piece from Quillette, he says that some of the protesters were quoted as shouting, you have killed our king, you have chased away our priests, you have sold off the property of our church, where is the money you have spent it all? Now you want our bodies. No, you will not have them. And then other peasants asked, you expect us to go fight for this government, to fight at the command of men who have turned the administration of this country upside down, executed our king, sold all the church's land, and want to subject us to priests we do not want whilst they send the real leaders of the church to prison. So this led to a, an insurgency. There were riots in the towns. People formed mobs. Government buildings ransacked all of the stuff that you would expect, right? This is the, the peasants rising up with pitchforks against what was supposed to be a peasant revolutionary government, which, as we know, the revolutionary governments throughout history tend to be much less, uh, much less uh, egalitarian and equal than they pretend to be when they're seizing power. There's always a revolutionary core that becomes an elite that then often become dictators themselves. Uh, but this led to some very uh, some very nasty pitched battles. But in this rural area of France during the French Revolution, in the Vendée, uh, the peasants who had very little uh, in terms of armament or training managed to fight well and actually win and win some win some pretty major battles. And then this is where uh, you know I, I I think that you'll start to see how. Remember, the French Revolutionary Government of the time is all, they, they were the progressives of the era. They were the progressive left government. This is, if, if you're in 1793 and AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders all of a sudden have uninhibited power, this is what the, you know, their equivalents, I should say, then this is what you would have. All about equality, the elevation of the state, the denigration of the church, the elimination of God. That's what was happening. Well, the powers that be, these revolutionary powers that say they're guided by reason and they're going to bring about a utopia. Remember, the French Revolution was a utopian revolution. It wasn't our version of the revolution, which is here's our rights come from God, not from man. Back off government. Here's what you're not allowed to do. Here's where we draw the lines and here's how we keep you in check. The French Revolution was, yeah, let's get rid of the, the monarchy and the bloated bureaucracy underneath it and replace it with a smart, intelligent bureaucracy of people who are just going to apply reason to all problems and have man in place of God. That's what the French Revolution was all about. And so when they were challenged in this way, things got really ugly. In this, in this piece by this, this author that I'm bringing your attention, he, he calls it the period of 
purification. Quote, the Revolutionary Army outnumbered the brigands and was far better armed. As the summer of 1793 went on, they began to regain territory and drive the brigands back. Now the killing could begin in earnest. The revolutionaries preferred not to take prisoners. There would be no clemency or mercy for the brigands. As winter approached, it was clear that the insurrection would not survive for long. The Committee for Public Safety sent Jean-Baptiste Carrier to Nantes. He arrived in October 20th of 1793, and he pioneered the technique of drowning brigands to save money on bullets. During his four months as the committee's representative, 452 alleged brigands were acquitted. 17, or 1,971 were executed by normal means, 3,000 died from disease, and 4,800 were drowned intentionally. At first, drowning was just used to deal with reactionary clergy, would not yield to the will of the authority in Paris. But it became customary to drown brigands naked, not merely so the revolutionaries could help themselves to the Vendéans' clothes, but also so that the younger women among them could be raped before death. Drownings spread far and wide. On the 16th of December, General Marceau sent a letter to the Revolutionary Minister of War, triumphantly announcing, among other victories, that at least 3,000 non-combatant Vendean women had been drowned at pont au beau The revolutionaries were drunk with blood and could not slaughter their brigand prisoners fast enough. Women, children, old people, priests, the sick, the infirm... If the prisoners could not walk fast enough to the killing grounds, they were bayoneted in the stomach and left on the ground to be trampled by other prisoners as they bled to death. General Westerman's finest day of slaughter took place at Sauvignet on December 21st, 1793. As he announced to an appreciative and grateful Committee for Public Safety. Oh, look at that. They changed the name again, folks. The Committee for Public Safety. Doesn't that sound like something the Democrats would come up with today? Oh, no, we're not the authoritarian Nightmare you think we are. We're just the Committee for Public Safety. This is Orwell 140 years before Orwell. 130. Citizens of the Republic, quote, There is no more Vendée. She has died beneath our saber of freedom with her women and children. I have buried her in the woods and marshes. Follow your orders. I have, following your orders, I have crushed her children under the hooves of my horses and massacred her women. Who will give birth to no further brigands now? There is not a single pr uh, prisoner who could criticize my actions. I have exterminated them all. You see, women were, end quote there, women were specifically targeted for rape and murder in this campaign of extermination by the revolutionary progressive left-wing government in Paris because the women would carry babies that they said because they were Vendéans from this area of Vendée, they would be anti-revolutionaries. As if this isn't sick enough. They then offered a fake amnesty. Quote, it is decreed by law that all people known as rebels in the Vendée who lay down their arms within a month of this decree will neither be sought out nor bothered because they rebelled. End quote. It was a fake amnesty. People who turned themselves in were, uh, were butchered just along with all the rest. They sent out six army divisions on a, quote, crusade of liberty to murder the brigands including their families, their women and children. These are their fellow Frenchmen, my friends. Murder the ones who decided to take the government at its word and surrender themselves. Nobody was spared. Women and children were bayoneted in the stomachs if there was the slightest hint of suspicion about them. 
Quote, the usual practice was to kill babies in front of their mothers, then kill the mothers. Young girls were often drowned after first being raped. Widows were usually beaten, insulted, and drowned. There was no established standard procedure. Eventually, the killing ended on February 17th, 1795. 117,000 Vendeans eradicated as a result of this Vendee genocide out of a population of 815,000, about one in seven, murdered, killed, disappeared. The Committee of Public Safety had given explicit orders to eliminate brigands to the last man because they were counter-revolutionaries. My friends, because they were thought criminals, because they stood in the way of progress, because these rural, church-attending, God-fearing Frenchmen of 1793 France did not believe in this revolution of their so-called betters and intellectual superiors who thought that if only the government were in the hands of the smartest and best men who had absolute power and nothing restraining them, then they could create a paradise where there had once been a monarchy. Of course, it was all very much a lie at the time, and that they would have a, quote, crusade for liberty that was really a campaign of extermination against their fellow human beings, killing men, women, children, the elderly. Well, this is only possible for individuals who have radicalized. And that's what you see in the French Revolution, the Jacobins, this government that justified everything that it was doing was a government of radicals. And when people lose connection to their fellow human beings in any country, this kind of behavior becomes possible. I know that we like to think this sort of thing would never happen here. But we did have a civil war in this country. It was not that long ago. And if we do not begin to destroy this ideology of the left that is first and foremost premised upon destroying everybody else, we are facing a very dark future. It is just a question of when. Because these people have completely lost their minds. And they do not see those who stand in their way as fellow Americans or even fellow human beings. They are scary. And this is going to get a lot worse. We'll be right back. Oh, Buck, did you have a good day today? Well, it was all right. I got a lot done. But that's only because of a little boost from my friends at Black Rifle Coffee. That's right. That's how I kick off every day. It is an American institution and the buck does not stop with Black Rifle Coffee. It keeps going throughout the day, man. I'm drinking Black Rifle two or three times a day and I want you to do the same thing. This should be your coffee company of choice. Forget about that commie coffee, that swill from, you know, who knows where on the left coast. Go with Black Rifle Coffee. This is roast to order, guaranteeing you fresh, delicious coffee with every order. While liberals threaten to further tax your hard-earned money with their socialism, Black Rifle Coffee is fueling the fight for freedom by upping their offer to 20% off. It's a great deal, folks. Take advantage, uh, take advantage by visiting BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck and receive 20% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. Again, one more time, BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. Undermining our country. All of you are speaking truth to power because you care about the future. You care about our children. You care about who is leading this country and who sits at the highest court in the land. Because you care about the things and you want the stuff to happen. And I'm just trying to like 
Sound like a politician. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, I just don't get it. I, I find her to be a an intense mediocrity, and I don't know what anyone sees in this woman other, other than a willingness to completely change her positions. And if you go back to what she used to stand for versus what she stands for now, it's a pretty remarkable split and uh, an unreal, uh, a real redo in many ways. But her whole thing here about how the, the people at the women, she was at the women's march there speaking truth to power. Um, most people who say they're speaking truth to power are actually just saying things that are going to make them feel like they're important and that they think that people around them want to hear. Mostly when people say you're speaking truth to power, what they mean is you're saying what everybody in this room wants to hear. And we think that's great because you're great. I just speaking truth to power is supposed to come with risks for Democrats. All they do is preach to the choir and act like they're speaking truth to power. And it's just a a bizarre upending of what's really happening. I, I, I'm not spending much time on, on Gillibrand's situation today, but we'll, we'll come back to it. I can assure you of that. I think that I have evinced uh, a humility about being a straight white male that I've never experienced uh, discrimination like so many do. I've never been pulled over as an African-American teenager by an officer driving through a white neighborhood. I've never been a a woman and been talked over in a meeting. So I approach this with humility. And that's why I've been so dedicated through a 25-year public career of advancing justice in our society, of making sure that we have as much diversity as possible. So that's uh, Governor Inslee. And he's telling you what is, you know, he's a, he's a governor of Washington state, and he's telling you what the expectation is now if, if you are a, a white male. And if you deviate from this in our society, you face real, uh, real problems. If you start to say, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I should be obligated to uh, say that my opinion is worth less on matters or that I have, I have benefited in ways that nobody can really define or specify, but are, are present all the time, that all of my accomplishments are at least somewhat tainted by the fact that I am a, a male who is white um, and, and that we have to walk around and constantly act like we should be sorry. And that's really what it is. I mean, you're supposed to walk around now as a straight white male in this country. And if you're, because remember, if you're on the left, you're already doing this. Or, or it is assumed that you believe that white males should be doing this. Therefore, you get a pass if you don't do it. But you're on the side of, there's a problem with white males that the the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and white privilege these are all different all different things that come together for the left that with these uh, with these concepts we are supposed to be in a state of perpetual self degradation uh, perpetual you know putting putting down your own views on things your own accomplishments. And, and this is now passing for some kind of introspection and thoughtfulness on the left. You know, if you walk around saying, I, I'm a really, uh, I'm, I'm obviously a really bad person because of my white privilege and I need to make sure that I keep my white privilege in check. People applaud, applaud this. Um, people now say that your whiteness is something you have to be conscious of. I mean, conscious of, Ch check your privilege, they say. 
Huh. Keep in mind that none of the rules that we have seen trotted out all of a sudden. Once again, right now, now the Democrats have they have not fired uh, or, or nor have they forced the resignation of Northam in Virginia. Uh, two women on the record accusing Fairfax of sexual assault. Um, Herring, the third in charge of the state of Virginia, said that he also wore blackface and he hasn't gone anywhere. None of these people have suffered any consequences. But now we are rediscovering, it seems, just in time for this whole uh, this whole situation with Tucker Carlson. We're rediscovering that there are there are rules and that if you are a, a white male, not only are you supposed to be always apologizing for who you are, uh, you also have to be subject to any level of nastiness and hatred and vitriol. People can make fun of you. They can say whatever they want about you all day, all the time. They can uh, they can make fun of specifically your whiteness and, oh, just a typical white male racist and all this stuff. They can really engage in in the, the nastiest kinds of, of smears and undermining behavior as long as you're a white male who is not a leftist and they can do whatever they want and if you fight back or you say you know i I don't approve of this then they call you off for your privilege i mean this is a pernicious and destructive ideology i mean leftism has really become a corrosive psychosis and it's gotten a lot worse i don't sit here just telling you oh this is uh, you know, this situation is, is spiraling out of control. That situation is spiraling out of control. Uh, the, the left has become psychologically corrupted in a way that gives me real concern. And I think anybody should be concerned at this point uh, because they don't stop. I mean, we can't even draw red lines now with the idea that, well, at least they won't go that far on that issue. No, they they keep looking at what is the what is the eventual extreme of the position the left could take and they keep taking that position we gotta pay very close attention to this the show ain't over yet folks it's time for roll call first roll call of the week which i'm hoping will be one of the best roll calls of the week facebook.com slash buck sexton to get in on the action and uh, always good to hear from you, team. Always appreciate when you write in. Uh, David has this for us. Buckman, Shields High, KLBJ, and podcast listener. I wish people would stop referring to the Steele dossier as opposition research. Oppo research is when you dig up real dirt on an opponent and expose it. The Clinton-funded dossier was outright fabrication. It is lies, plain and simple. Two questions. Can those who brought this investigation be prosecuted for basing it on false evidence? And even more importantly, will they? Uh, David, the answer, unfortunately, here, I think is going to be a little disappointing. Uh, no, the people that started the investigation, the FBI, using the dossier are very unlikely to suffer any kind of consequences or have any kind of drawbacks or, or problems for them professionally beyond what we've already seen. Um, because they're operating within a realm of professional discretion. And federal employees are generally very protected when it comes to the conduct they engage in on the job. Unless they do something that is knowingly and willfully criminal, it's very hard to give them anything beyond professional sanctions. And even those are hard to come by. 
Adam writes, on Girl Scout cookies, I prefer the Thin Mints. Well, Adam, you are certainly welcome to your uh, opinion on this one. And I haven't had a Thin Mint in a long time, so maybe I'll have to give it a shot. Autumn writes, Konnichiwa. Okay, konnichiwa, Autumn. Over the last few weeks, I've been traveling through Asia on vacation. Typically, your par- your uh, podcast is part of my daily routine. But while moving through communist China, I was concerned downloading your podcast using their censored internet could be a problem. You might ask yourself, who would vacation in China? My answer is only a crazy person. I'm currently in Japan and downloaded your previous episodes of the podcast I missed during my time in China. Tonight, while walking through the side streets of Osaka, I was listening to you make an impression of Bernie Sanders and I laughed out loud. Then it made me insanely nervous. After being in a communist country, I questioned what's the difference between socialism and that? To me, I see no difference and I can't help but wonder whether I experienced just days ago could become a dangerous and sober reality. Lastly, what is your opinion of Howard Schultz? Does he stand a chance of beating the Democrats? And while a conservative, it would be disingenuous to say I don't like him. Your thoughts on these much appreciated Shields High Autumn. Well, Autumn, I will, I'm going to be in China myself in May. So I'm hoping to be able to do the show from there. Although I have to look into whether that's something I can do, not just technically, but whether that might be a problem. Uh, I've never been in Japan, very much interested in going there at some point. And as for your stuff on whether it could, we ever be a communist country here, I, I do think we face uh, a very real threat of socialism. You know, when you think about when socialism had its real heyday in Europe and the West, uh, it was, you know, it really my, my grandparents' generation was when you had the spread of socialism uh, across Western Europe, the spread of socialism, and, and then reaching its apex in the communism of the Soviet Union, that's not long ago. We haven't been a modern economy uh, rooted in at least capitalist ideology for very long. And I think that it's easy for us all to assume that because this is the way things have been, this is the way things will continue to be. And that's not the case. Uh, we, We face a very real threat, in my opinion, of... Uh, falling into the trap of becoming first a democratic socialist and then a more hardline socialist country, uh, especially given some of the things I've been outlining here, like the debt and the problems we may have that are structural to our economy and the amount of anger and rage and fear that will come from that if, if the bill comes due and we can't pay it in this country. That could very well lead to a kind of radicalization toward socialism and statism. And that's a, that's a very real concern. Richard writes, I don't like your definition of well-read. Hitler was an avid reader as a young man, but he read mostly garbage. Uh, well, Richard, I, I, I can appreciate that you might have a different definition. I would just say this. There's so much out there to read that to come up with a list of what you have to read to be well-read seems a little bit like a fool's errand to me. And I think that people who are um, generally reasonable and and moral people who make a habit of um, of reading are going to come across a lot of very good stuff. And the more you read also, I think the better your ability to pick your next read becomes. Uh, you have a better sense of authors and what, you, you know, the the big question that I often have for myself is, what's an area that not just interests 
uh, not just I have an interest in, but where I could expand my knowledge next. And I try to have that direct some of my reading. I try to use that to guide some of my reading choices. Garrett writes, Buck, I'm begging you to look into AOC, Justice Democrats, and Jenk Uger. Uh, AOC is an idiot actor when she rambles offices she knows nothing and is following a script. The list she was talking about is also mentioned in the Justice Democrats website. Shields high, boy. Uh, Garrett, I will check it out, man. I, I don't, you know, I don't know what exactly the Justice Democrats have done. And, uh, you know, Jenk Uyghur over, over at the Young Turks, I know who that guy is. And AOC, look, I find AOC really troubling. At first it was, oh, she's young, she's new, she'll learn. No, no, she has no intention of really learning. She just wants to inflict her will upon the rest of us. And she has a very large and powerful uh, echo chamber around her that will help her in that regard. So don't think that she's somebody that any of us can ignore, even if you're not on social media and you're not as caught up in all this stuff as a lot of other folks. AOC is very bad news. Make no mistake about it. Alan, hey, Buck, has anyone challenged Bernie on his rationale for owning three homes since he is against the wealthy class. Shouldn't he give the homes to people who need housing? I never see anyone asking him about it. Also, do the Green New Deal advocates say what will happen if the U.S. follows their guidelines, but the rest of the world doesn't? Will the world end in 15 years instead of 12? Alan, uh, Bernie never addresses the, he's so so opposed to help to, to rich people. They've got so much money, so much stuff, but he's got three homes, Bernie. Three homes. But for a socialist, you see, the thing is, he has guests over a lot, and I, I'm sure that he shares those homes with the guests when they're there. So I don't know. Bernie gets away with a lot of things, and I, I do believe that Bernie is going to be the nominee. I do think that that's the likeliest scenario right now. I could be wrong, but come on, really? Tracy, excellent appearance on Fox and Friends over the weekend. You made some points that were very compelling, and the leftist condescension was magnified as immature. You exhibited exactly what I've always believed works in the advancement of conservatism. Argue our points of fact with humor, authenticity, and don't let them cut in and take over. Too many times we lose the point because of seeming unpreparedness coupled with timidity. You knocked it out of the park. Thanks, Tracy. Well, thank you, Tracy. You know, it's not easy these days, especially in this environment where if you say something, not even that is wrong, but that the left can, in bad faith, make the case is wrong, you could suffer consequences in the public square. And that's that's what we're up against. It's not just that the rules are hard to, the rules are too strict about what we can say. They're not enforced against both sides equally. But even beyond that, they are enforced in a way where it's not even honest. You know, their view of what you've said or done is not even honest. So they don't just say, well, you can't say that. They'll say you can't say that. And if your response is, but that's not what I said, it doesn't matter to them. They're just looking for ways to destroy their political opponents, which is what they uh, what they like to do. And that's why uh, Media Matters and MoveOn.org and these left-wing organizations are uh, trash bags. They're, they're bad places where bad people choose to work. And I'm not going to stop saying that because it is true. And I think that the truth should be something that we share freely here. Uh, Will writes, Buck, good hit on Fox and Freds with uh, Ed Henry and that left-wing nutbag. I wish you had more time to challenge him on the climate change is real nonsense, but the leftist didn't look like he would remain composed if you challenged his 
religion, you know, well, I mean, climate change is real. It's just a stupid point. It doesn't mean anything. I think climate change is real, too. I think that the climate is probably going to go up a degree or down a degree over the next hundred years. I think that it doesn't really matter and that nobody really knows. But I think that climate change is real. It's going to happen. What I don't think is that we should take massive, uh, well, we should take massive government-based intervention into the markets in order to avert a catastrophe that's just not going to happen and, and create a catastrophe in the process. And that's just insane, but that is what the left wants to do. Uh, Jerry writes, Buck, if you'd please do a segment on this topic right here. We are seeing a rise in infectious diseases in the U.S. Back when Obama was in office and he was addressing the immigration issue, I picked up on something and got on the CDC website. The CDC used to have a map on it that showed areas that there was a risk in rise of, of infectious disease. I look at the map, all the states adjacent to the southern border and all the way up the west coast of Washington. Um, and about three months later, I visited the CDC website again to locate that map and it was gone. Today, look at the rise in measles, cases, and other diseases. Personally, I believe it is due to people entering our country illegally. Most are coming from poverty-stricken countries, and I would be willing to say that 99% of them don't have the proper immunizations required by the CDC guidelines to enter our country. All the more reason we should have that wall in place. I wish this would be investigated and made public. Another reason to declare a national security, uh, national emergency at the border. Think about one pandemic of Ebola or something of that nature could wipe out thousands of men, women, and children. Just a thought, Jerry. Jerry, the rise in infectious diseases that we're seeing along the border is real. It is documented. I have already spoken to people in Immigration and Customs Enforcement about it. So your your idea here is not is not a theory. It is it is fact. Uh, of course, the media is going to do a lot of well. We have a lower vaccination rate because of people on the coasts. Uh, and people who are anti-government in the interior, and they're going to talk about a lot of things that have nothing to do with migrants, but it's just a fact. There are migrants showing up with tuberculosis, with whooping cough, with measles, with things that we think of as cured in this country, but in other countries, they still have it, and it is coming into this country, and that's very real. Team, I'm going to leave it there for today. We have a great week of shows planned for you. I will talk to you tomorrow. Shields high. There's only one dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company out there and it's Global Verification Network. It is federally certified as a veteran owned small business and folks, you know that if you're hiring people and you're bringing people into your company, you're gonna be working with them, you need background checks done and you need full vetting on them. And even if you currently have somebody that does those checks for you, I really would advise you to check out my friends at Global Verification Network. Just give them a call and see what kind of a program they can set up for you because they do all of this stuff here in the States. They don't offshore any other data or client information and their risk mitigation experts are the best in the business. Call 877-695-1179. Again, that's 877-695-1179 or go to mygvn.com. That's Global Verification Network at mygvn.com. Tell them Buck Sexton sent you and Global Verification Network, leave no stone unturned.